0: This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial,
1: intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, Today's episode focuses on a topic that is ever-present in the news, and uh, even more so recently, uh, college admissions. Um, and the various questions surrounding college admissions in terms of access, inequality, uh, cheating, uh, and various other issues. Uh, Does our process uh, allow for democratic access to higher education for citizens? And if it doesn't, uh, how can we improve our system of college admissions in the United States? Uh, We have with us today uh, really a remarkable guest, uh, someone I've gotten to know in the last few months. Uh, her name is Renee Gadsden. Uh She's been a leader in higher education uh, for nearly a decade. It's amazing because uh, she's so young, but yet yeah, she's been a leader for so long. Uh, she's worked at admissions at three different uh, private liberal arts colleges, directing and implementing recruitment initiatives and college access programming for students of color for first generation students and students from low income families. Uh, While she's been doing all of that, Renee recently completed a master's in public affairs at the LBJ school and uh, she was a leader uh, around these exact issues. Uh, at the LBJ School and at the University of Texas, where she served as an executive board member of the Public Affairs Alliance for Communities of Color, and as an elected student representative of the Faculty Diversity and Inclusion Committee. So Renee's been in the trenches, so to speak, in uh, questions of access and higher education. Renee, it's great to have you here.
0: Great. Thanks for having me.
1: Our pleasure. Uh, we will start, of course, with a scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem? Knowledge. Knowledge. Okay, let's hear it.
2: I have known since the age of five where I wanted to learn, to learn for four years under looming architecture, dedicated to the study of ancient stars and modern literature. Though they have changed with time, the fusillades of Yale, Harvard, Stanford, have flown mellifluous with the years. And yet there is another who cannot imagine, cannot even think of going, ignores it with the strong belief that it is too impossible, though they know all that is possible in the realm of the human mind, know every fact, every word in the dictionary. But not even the thought of college is allowed to occasionally pay a visit to their mind, kept away by the conventions of a broken system. And I have set foot on more campuses than could be listed. I have known the feeling of a cold lecture hall from my first breaths, I have known the feeling of the grass on so many a historic hill, I have known the people, the words, the heart of so many places that most could only dream of in the most delirious state of slumber. Yet there is someone who may live in my city, my school district, may breathe the same air, see the same stars, who has not even daydreamt of touching that soil of a thousand scholars, and cannot even imagine sitting under the shadow of the halls of famous men, and sipping from the well of wisdom. And yet we are expected to write the same letters, the same essays, the same dedications to teenage naivete, though they are supposed to do it, with all, it all with second-hand notebooks on library computers, well, I can type my first drafts on clean MacBooks under the watchful eye of a tutor who knows the inner workings of a broken system.
1: Zachary, it's, it it seems your poem is about inequality. What is, what is what is your uh, your main point here?
2: Well, my main point the main point of my poem is how there's how in one in one area of our society there's a lot of privilege and wealth around college missions, and people like myself who have had such a have had the privilege of like knowing what a college is like and, and knowing what college is and that they want to go to college for so long, while those who are not as privileged are not even given the opportunity to really think about themselves in a college setting. But yet at the same time, they're expected to do the same thing and have the same skill level on paper as everyone else. And I think that that's something that's really unequal because when you have people being judged based on things they
1: can't control. It's right. a real problem. It's, it's as if some start out with so many advantages and others don't. Uh, well, Renee, that seems like the appropriate place to turn to you. Uh, why is it that our college admissions process, and for that matter even admissions processes for high schools and various things, seem to be going in the wrong direction with less diversity rather than more diversity? What, what, what are the challenges that we face?
0: Sure. So I... So I don't want to dismiss the fact that efforts have been made. And I think there is data that does show that there has been progress. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as I'm a firm believer that there's always more work to be done. I mean, there's a lot more work that can be done. Um, So I'll start there. Um, I think that a lot of the challenges are beyond the walls of an institution as well. I think there it's what's happening in the community um, Zachary, you nicely talked about, and again, those inequalities, um, privileges that people have access to resources, let's say, right, that I think happen outside of school. Um, a lot of times in the K through 12 um, space, we talk a lot about, you know, how can we... Bring in the whole family, the whole right. community right. Um, when you're thinking about food security when you're thinking about health when you're thinking about transportation, there's a lot of different factors that do overlap that contribute I think to some of these you know disparities
1: and and uh... You talk about the efforts that have been made, and certainly they've been extraordinary. Uh, and you were working firsthand on this, but but why is it that they seem um, to, to to fail to compensate for some of these uh, structural issues? What what are the things we're missing?
0: So, in terms of like the college level, I I still feel like testing is a huge challenge. Um, there has been a lot of attempts, at least in, since I've worked in admissions to provide test prep for students, um, for black and brown communities, for first-generation communities, and, and low-income communities. Um, at least in the 10 years that I've worked in admissions, I have actually seen growth in test preparation Um, through community-based organizations. Um, So there has been growth in that area, but again, that is external outside of, let's say, your traditional public school. Right. Um, And the reason for that is in the traditional public school, your guidance counselor's main role is counseling, not necessarily college preparation. So they're dealing a lot with more of that socio-emotional in the school as opposed to, Um, that college preparation. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes these CBOs will come in and either partner with schools or be a separate entity to provide exactly that, this college access. um, How do you navigate um, that, you know, college trajectory and that journey. And
1: CBOs are college board officers. Um,
0: college um, <laughs> CBOs are community-based organizations. Community-based organizations. That's so they,
1: they come in to try to provide test prep and things of that sort to substitute for the support that a lot of students don't get yeah, otherwise. And
0: they, they can be internal or they're external. Um, they tend to be their own nonprofit, so five hundred one c threes often. Gotcha.
1: Yep. Gotcha. And it is part of the problem that um, those coming out of disadvantaged communities don't. Don't understand the process. Don't know, for example, that there's financial aid available. There've been studies showing that people underapply from certain communities for financial aid. Is that is that still a major issue?
0: I would say yes and no. I'm sure there are definitely some families that maybe not do not necessarily know the whole process. But I think we are getting to a place where families do. No. Um, the process, especially with the common application, making right. it a lot easier, um, you know, it's one application, so you apply it everywhere. And again, with the growth of these community-based organizations, these college access organizations, I think the word is out there. Libraries do a really good job mm-hmm. of communicating that. So I think I think all communities now are becoming more of a college-going culture, or at least aspiring to that, or want to. That's great. Um, but Zachary's poem, I think you said it best, is that even though I a student may want to. Do they have that same access to it? I think is really what where we're switching the conversation. Right. Um, in terms of,
1: and I think I missed the last, the second part of your question. So I mean, so what what are the things that uh, are making it harder for people to learn about the information they need oh, to have?
0: Sure. So and yeah. Um, well, I think they have the information, but the financial aid is right. what I definitely right. wanted to address. So, with the financial aid, um, it's a it's the FAFSA is a convoluted form. Right. Um, it's complicated. This is the
1: standard form everyone has to. It complete.
0: is a standard form in order to get aid, and I'm happy we're bringing this up because when we think about admissions, I think oftentimes we just think about the application itself when we forget about the rest of the process. The rest, because once you're in, you can get admitted. I don't students are admitted no matter their background. They are admitted, but affordability is a huge part of that process. And FAFSA is another component. Um, And there's been a lot of conversations about how do you make the FAFSA form easier Mm -hmm. um, when you're thinking about tax forms. Um, Getting tax forms is hard when you are a teenager (laughs) and um, you're responsible for filling out these forms by yourself. Right. Um, And a lot of times um, if you will a big barrier to FAFSA is you have to have both guardians fill out information. Um, but if you are a student, let's say, who does not have a relationship with one of your parents and they have not been in your life at all and you have not communicated with them, right. how do you get that information? Right. But you have to get that information. Really? Or else you will not get your financial aid award. Right.
1: So, so in a, in a sense, there are bureaucratic barriers that that probably uh, hinder certain communities more than more mm-hmm. than others. Okay. Now, there's there's an ongoing de- debate about affirmative action. Of mm-hmm. course, uh, first of all, as someone who has watched the process uh, for ten years or more, uh, what what is your assessment of affirmative action? What works well? What doesn't work well? Um, how, how how should we think about this? It's obviously about ongoing court cases surrounding this as well.
0: Yeah. So with affirmative action, I, in the work that I've done, um, we always have a holistic process. Um, so I've never had to see personally, at least in the work that I've done, you know, the pros and cons of affirmative action because all the schools I've ever worked for were always a holistic process. Mm-hmm. Um, so we looked at test scores. I would look at, you know, context of where a student is from. Um, so I think, you know, that has always been, at least in my career, on the forefront of making sure we're looking at the whole student right. um, to try our very best in making sure that it we're, you know, um, providing ec- equitable access to higher education, um, I think in terms of studies that I have read, um, you know, it's there's mixed outcomes and there's mixed um, feelings about whether affirmative action is doing what it is has intended to mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are. Some studies that have shown, yes, it is working, but it depends on the competitive level of the institution. Um, I think there's also those that have said, no, it's not working. Um, but again, these are empirical studies and right. there will be different outcomes right. depending
1: on that. But but what do you say to the, the student who applies uh, from one background and has higher test scores, let's say, and higher grades? Uh, but then someone from a disadvantaged background who has lower test scores and lower grades is admitted. I mean, this happens uh, quite often, sure. Um, and that's that's often where you get these claims of uh, unfairness, yeah. by those who have been denied a seat to someone who, on paper, just on terms of scores, might look like they're uh, less qualified. How how do you how do you think about that? How do you justify the holistic process in that context?
0: Sure. So. And that's the whole. That's why holistic review is so important. Um, is because context is everything. Right. And for instance, if a student. Has um, a, to your to your example, if you have a student from let's say a more um, affluent background right. that comes from a more affluent community with more resources, who does have top scores? I mean, I have read applications from those from both sure. communities. So I'll have a student who is from a community affluent community who is on has that top right. scores, but so does everyone else in. Their community. Right. So does that is that really differentiating them and how they took advantage and led in their community? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is what you're looking at in terms of the difference. Because a student that may have the lower, let's say, SAT score and maybe slightly lower GPA, but maybe they took all of the APs offered at their school. Right. Maybe they were still taking the most challenging curriculum that they were, that was afforded to them. Right. As well as you know, helping mom at home, after school, with the siblings, and having some family responsibilities, right. as well as, you know, the athletics or the film or a job. Right. You know, I right. think leadership looks different depending on where your your background and your personal responsibilities.
1: This is your point about context. It could be yeah. a student who has a slightly lower GPA, but has been working full time while taking a whole slew of AP courses versus someone who has a higher GPA but hasn't been working. Exactly. Who looks more impressive in that context, right? right? right. Zachary, you had a question?
2: Yeah, I was wondering what like, what students do, like, get on campus. What, are, what is being done to make students from disadvantaged backgrounds feel more welcome on campus?
0: That's a really great question. Um, so some schools will have specific... You know, well, first they'll have orientation, right? And um, a lot of colleges will do orientation to get students acclimated. Um, a lot of st- the student organizations, um, a lot of affinity groups. So let's say like multicultural student organizations or Black student organizations, let's say, um, will come together and either, you know, mentor um, and kind of be a community within a community. Um, I think the best colleges are the ones that have communities within communities, especially for, you know, our students of color, our low-income students, yes. and our first-generation students. Um, I have known college some colleges to even have offices um, that work specifically with first-generation students, right, and really tackle those intersectionalities of identity head-on, um, and I think that's super important because just because you are African-American, let's say, doesn't necessarily mean you're first generation right. and share that, you know, same commonality. Um, other ways um, is um, some students will have um, preparation. So let's say depending, and this doesn't necessarily mean anything about your personal identity, but if there's, you know, your your math maybe is not necessarily up to where it needs to be, then They'll give you that extra, right. uh, you know, accommodation, that extra support in that era, in your first year, right? Because right. your first year is critical, freshman year, making sure that you get acclimated socially, but as well as academically. Um, and then also like mentorship. You know, making sure that students know where your safe place is on campus that you can go to, to ask those questions, to learn how to navigate, to learn how to, um, you know, approach your professors, because that's scary, you know, and some students just don't know, hey, how do I have a conversation with my professor? How, to, how do I maximize this opportunity and build that relationship?
1: so there's so many things that that you've been a part of so many programs that are are clearly making a difference and making an effort and that's that's a really positive story uh but still it's hard as an educator not at at times to feel like there's still a huge gap um two examples of course uh university of texas right here uh we're in a state that will soon be majority minority but you wouldn't know that on our campus uh for example and uh, another example, my high school in New York City that we've talked about a few times on this podcast, Stuyvesant High School, uh, recently admitted more than uh, 700 students. This is one of the magnet schools in New York uh, to their new class, of which nine were African-Americans. And this is in a city where African-Americans and uh, Latinos and Latinas are, and I think, almost a majority, if not a majority, of the public school system. Mm-hmm. So the gap still seem to be really large For in spite of all these efforts that you've described so well, Renee, Why is that?
0: I don't, you know, I feel that we need to humanize some of these processes a little bit more. Um, I think, you know, we, we have the data. I think, you know, looking at economics, looking at empirical evidence is is great. But let's not forget that students are humans too. Right. And I think more can be done to make the process more personalized. Um, I think the best schools, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I think the schools that do best at this work yes. are the ones who really take the time to recruit our, you know, multicultural students, to recruit our first generation intentionally mm-hmm. and head on and purposely, um, purposefully mm-hmm. um, and with a lot of heart. Um, and I think, you know, understanding that, as an admissions counselor, let's say you, the counselor piece really needs to shine. Yes. Um, to ha- build a relationship with families. And that is really key um, to really making the the difference. Um, and if that means, you know, you're funding a family to visit your school. Right. Then, you know, trying to find that and, and to make it happen, you know, Um Funding is a huge component. Sure. Um, I think I've always said, you know, these the students that we're talking about today are the cream of the crop. When you're thinking about a high-achieving student who is, you know looking to make themselves better and do better for the world and be part of the community. These are the cream of the crop students. Your institution is not the only institution that wants that student. So the way you're recruiting an athlete should be the same way that you're recruiting a student of color, a first-generation student, or a low-income student. The same efforts and the same amount of funding should be put into that.
1: It sounds very much parallel, what what you're describing. Of course, that takes an enormous amount of resources. It, yes, and and do you find that schools are willing to do that?
0: I do feel that schools are willing to to do that. Um, I do, um, but I feel that they are. Some may be reluctant because um, at the end of the day, schools are. Let's be their businesses too, of course, right? Um, so we have to sustain. Um, and I may be going to a different direction, but it is slightly, um, it is related. One thing that I have learned and has slightly bothered me um, a bit is how exactly this. Um, I have in my career, my early 20s, I had, you know, very influential, and you know, whatever someone you know taught me, I'm like, okay, yes, this is this is the way, right? You know, and the rhetoric that's used, you you buy into it a little bit um, when you're learning something. Um, So it was, you know, in order to recruit, you know, my students, and I say my students because I was a multicultural recruitment coordinator. um, We have to also recruit full pays because the full pays pay for the rhetoric was full pays pay for your low income students. Okay. So that's embedded, right, in us. We need the full pays, but now it's it still is this um, this savior, white savior complex mm-hmm. almost. Okay. Um, and I have a huge problem with that because I feel like it takes dignity away from the community by saying that one community is paying for right. the other. Right. Right. Um, so in addition, there's also this. Um, we say, oh, when we are recruiting multicultural students, low income students, or first generation students, you know, it's diversity. We coin them, it's adding diversity. It's, if we do this, it's adding value. So there's a return on the investment right. for the community that already exists here. Mm-hmm. It's, never, it's never a rhetoric of the other way around. We only tell the story one way. Yes. Um, it, in my opinion, it should be we're doing this because. This community deserves it. Right. Um, And we have a civic duty to do so. Right. Um, And that should be the value add. Not that, hey, and it happens in corporate America as well. Sure, when you think about sure. it, they talk about, oh, let's do diversity and recruitment, teach sure. diversity officers, so that, and it proves that we'll get higher revenues, higher right. profits. Right. Instead of, no, people just deserve these positions because they're equally
1: as good, right. if not better. This is what you mean by humanizing the process, right? Yes. People don't want to be seen as the instruments to someone else's agenda. They yes. actually want to be seen as students, as people who are cared about by the institution that cares to and invests in, in educating them. Yes. Right, and that's Absolutely. that's often not the way this is discussed, even by defenders of affirmative action. Right. Uh,
0: yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I would say so. Zachary, you had a question. Um,
2: I was wondering how the process is different, and how you think the process for recruiting multicultural and first generation students should be, when we're talking about like a bigger school like UT, which really can't go out and recruit like individual to It can't go out and recruit all of its students as individuals they have to have like a larger pool how do you prevent the how do you prevent the privilege of others from hijacking the process and making it about making it about who has the best grades on paper and less about what the process should really be about right when the numbers are so large yeah
0: yeah i mean and again i would push back a little bit and say a school like UT can absolutely do it, right? They do it with their athletes. So why couldn't they do it for a population that we need to serve, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And and do right by. So I would push against that a little bit and say that it is absolutely possible. Um, I think it is a power of building relationships and choosing, you know, again, the mission process starts with recruitment. Where are you choosing to recruit? I have had colleagues, not necessarily in the offices I've worked for, but when you travel, you know, you meet other admission counselors. Um, And I have met people that say, I don't go to that school because there's metal detectors. Well, now you are hindering an opportunity for a student to come to your institution because you refuse to go to certain schools because of you know, the environment, let's say, right? right? Um, And I just don't, I don't think that's fair. And, you know, again, you're limiting access. So I think, you know, who are you spending, where are you spending your resources, even when you're traveling? Because that can still be done at a large scale. And it still is individualized. If I'm in an auditorium speaking with with students, because you are visiting at least five schools a day when you're traveling, at least five schools, these are hour visits. So... You can, you can absolutely do it depending on how you're allocating your, your time. Um, what, we, what we would do as multicultural recruitment coordinators, I was part of a community up north, is um, in terms of strategy, what we would try to do is if your, um, let's say, multicultural population at your university was you know, 15%, just throwing numbers out there, um, then you should aim the 15% of your travel Every year should be targeted towards that demographic, whether it's by you know school, sure. con- building relationships with community-based organizations. Fifteen um, percent or more should be dedicated to that.
1: Mm-hmm. And and it seems to me that there's an even deeper point you're making, which is so important, which is that uh, a school like UT should be involved in these communities beyond recruitment, right? Uh, one of the ways that uh, universities recruit athletes is they they build long-term relationships with coaches. Uh, and with programs at the high school level. Uh, one could do that academically more than we do. Most universities don't spend a lot of time investing in actually connecting their professors and connecting the academic programming with a lot of communities that are, are non-traditional. And so if professors, if programs are in those communities more often, then those communities are likely to feel more connected to the university, more comfortable applying, and that makes the job of an admissions officer, it seems to me, uh, more more humane, right? Yes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm not sure exactly what, you know, UT does or doesn't do um, in terms of, you know, who they're connected with, you know, but I imagine like things like Project Mails. Exactly. I mean, that is one way that I think UT does stay connected in... You know in the community right. um and i think you know that's that's brilliant you know being able to be a reference and a resource yes not just an admissions counselor not right. just a recruiter is extremely important being able to get out in the community and provide you know essay writing workshops or you know how to fill out the common application or how to fill out any college application for that matter and really walking families through what each each section is and how it is reviewed and why it's valuable for right. the process right. is extremely helpful um, because these are the kinds of things that an, a, an affluent community is getting right um, that maybe you know non-affluent communities you know aren't getting and they aren't getting that same that right. same insight. And if mom and dad or brother and sister didn't go through the process, Um, and maybe they did, but it was a long time ago, and maybe it wasn't for like a full-time kind of um, higher education um, program, then it's going to look a lot different. Sure,
1: sure. What's your thought on uh, admissions counselors, especially this is quite controversial now surrounding uh, obviously some evidence that wealthy families have been using admissions counselors to, in a sense, bribe their way or Mm -hmm. cheat their way in. What, What is your experience with these private admissions consultants?
0: <laughs> so I have not had those. Um, what's in the news now? I have. I have not had, a, like necessarily those sorts of ex- experiences. I hope not. <laughs> no, no. I've never been bribed. I haven't had <laughs> situations where you know we've been we've been bribed. I mean, we've definitely have. Um, Parents, and I haven't necessarily dealt with like consultants really pushing that envelope too much. You know, parents definitely advocate for their kids um, a lot, and it is going to be, you know, from the families who have been through this process many a times. Um, before, um, where they're calling on behalf of, you know, their child and, and that sure. sort of thing, and maybe trying to push the
1: envelope, but not not as far as like a, a bribe. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's your job in admissions to push back, right? And not allow. It
0: that. is. It is. I mean, um, you know, there's. I've had, um, you know, moms call and just say, definitely shown a little Made some discriminatory comments, and yes, like I, you have to put your foot down as an admission counselor and explain, like, no, you know, this this student, no matter their background, belongs here. Right. You know, right. belongs here. Um, they deserve to be here. No one's taking anyone's spot. That is not how this process right. works. Right.
1: <laughs> right. So, I guess our last question, Renee, this has been a fascinating conversation. Our last question, sort of looking forward, is how can our listeners? Um, help this process to become more inclusive while also playing the game as they have to. I mean, that's the dilemma, right? So uh, whether you're a parent or you're a student or wherever you are, uh, you have to play the game yeah. um, because you want the, the best access you can have. And that's, that's the obligation you have to yourself. But while playing the game how can we still encourage the process to become more inclusive and, and highlight some of the positive elements that we clearly need more of? How can we make it more humane while we're succeeding at it?
0: Absolutely. So first and foremost, I mean, heart, I mean, first this lead with heart, lead with passion, lead, lead with heart, right. And, and lead with love. I think that's really the first and foremost, because this is a very stressful process. Um, And I think if, Anything it when you leave when you lead with love, um, it's also it makes it a little bit easier to deal with maybe rejection if you had you know because you can't admit everyone um, and not that it's easy but it's just you know it's from a good place right and there's nothing necessarily malicious about these processes at the end of the day you know um, to the parents and and the guardians and to students know that. Um, Colleges care. I know the media is maybe posing some colleges as, mm-hmm. you know, the, the evil here, um, but they're they're not always that way. It seems that way sometimes, mm-hmm. but they really have their hearts in the in the right place, sure. taking the steps in the right direction. Um, there are limits to what an institution can do and how many students an institution can take in. But remembering that, you know, that's important in order to provide the best opportunity. You know, size is important, so you don't want to have over enroll because then it can impact your, your experience. Um, so lead with, lead with heart. I think for, um, for counselors, I would recommend to really make that extra effort to go out there and to go into the communities that maybe you're not familiar, familiar with and learn more about it. Um, especially if it's not a community, you know, that you're from, Um, talk with the counselors, talk with the families, um, eat at the local restaurants, you know, especially since the school's paying for your lunch that day, Um, maybe, you know, just explore a little bit, Um, walk around because I think once you need to really immerse yourself in the community to understand and also be patient because it can take up to three to five years to build a relationship with a new school or a new community-based organization or a new community. Um, And then, you know, for the the students, um, you know, continue to be you and, and share your story. You know, um, share your story in your application. When you're meeting admissions counselors, when you're on college campuses, share your story. Um, if you feel feel like you're standing out in a community. Um, It's because you are glowing, (laughs) um, you know, and you belong there. Um, And continue to ask questions. Um, I I think more students can ask more questions. I think people are scared to ask questions. But as admission counselors, we like questions. Yes. We love questions. (laughs) Um, And there's no such thing as a stupid question. So,
1: yeah. Zachary, is this is this helpful for you to think about the process as you see it, uh, and also your your moral commitments that you laid out so well in your poem? Is this helpful?
2: Um, yes, I really do think that there's that, that that for myself specifically, but also for for people my age, that there is a lot of reckoning around the college admissions process and recognizing that it's it's not fair necessarily, and that it's not a perfect system, but that also we need to do our best to reform the system, that we can't just let it be. But at the same time, I do think that um, on the other hand, there's a lot of ignorance among people about how it affects others, especially when it comes to people personally. People um, on a large scale are happy to say that they're all for a fair process and that the system is broken. But when it comes to them individually not being admitted, then they're very angry when an affirmative action policy keeps them out. And I think that's something that we, we all need to reckon with if we actually want to have a better system.
1: And understand the process as a whole, and not just see it about one individual. Uh, There's there's a set of humane commitments I think we have to have throughout this. Uh, Renee and Zachary, I think you've given us so many insights here. Most important of all, I think, is recognizing the hard work that goes into uh, making a process that by its nature has to make choices, difficult choices, making this process as inclusive and as humane as possible. And perhaps one of the lessons for today is that we tend to speak or focus too much on just outcomes without understanding how we get to those outcomes and out understanding, without understanding more clearly uh, what it takes to actually uh, build a process that brings more people in. This is a long-term commitment, one where a new generation will have to uh, make some of its own uh, difficult choices mm-hmm. going forward. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your insights, Renee. Thank you, Zachary. This has been another wonderful episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com.
2: Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives
1: on democracy.